And with that, I'm going to invite Rob up. This morning's a little weird. You see, I have the lapel. The two of us are actually going to kind of co-teach. He's going to teach, then I'm going to teach, then we're going to talk. So it's going to be a little different than normal. So thank you, Rob. Yes, just a little different than normal, but um, we're doing this for a reason. We are back into Genesis. We, uh, we've been slowly working our way through the book of Genesis for some time now, and uh, today uh, we are back in it after, after a short break. Um, but we're, uh, we're, we're picking up a loose end. If you were here the last time we did Genesis, we talked through uh, Genesis chapter uh, uh, 25, and it's the story of, of um, Isaac and Rebekah's two boys, Jacob and Esau, how they were born. And, and, and we talked through that, that whole story, but there was one little chunk in the middle of the passage that we kind of skipped over. We said we were going to circle back to it, and that's, that's today. And so um, what we're, what we're going to do today is focus in on just, on just one, one uh, verse, and it's in the middle of Genesis chapter 25, and it's talking about these two boys, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, had twin sons. And in verse 23 of chapter 25, it says this, The Lord said to her, said to Rebekah, I'm not sorry, yeah, Rebekah. Uh, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So, so we're, we're going to jump off of that passage because that passage introduces or raises a, a question, a theological question that has been uh, working its way through the Christian church since ancient times, and so we're going to try to address it today. Um, but but just, to, just to catch us up a little bit, Genesis is primarily the story of Abraham, or Abraham's a big part of it, but not just Abraham, it's the promises that God makes to Abraham. God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham lived his life based on those promises coming true. Those promises culminated many generations later with Jesus, and they affect us today. The, God, the, the promises that God made to Abraham were promises to you and me today, because through Abraham, God blessed the whole world by sending his son, Jesus, to be the Savior, to be our Redeemer, to, to save us from our sins, to bring us back into a relationship with God. So the promises that God made to Abraham affect the whole world, and God told Abraham that they would. He said, all nations and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham, and it's because generations from now Jesus is going to come. But we see then how God begins to work that out through the years, and Abraham had a son named um, Isaac, and, and Isaac was a miracle, and God did so many things through that, but now Isaac is having sons that are going to, going to continue on, and, and so we're seeing this story, not just of the people, but of God's promises coming through and how they impact you and I. But this passage here, where, where we see now two boys being born, in the line of this promise where God is going to bring Jesus to impact your life and mine, we see something here. Two nations are in you, and God is speaking to, to Rebecca. The boys aren't even born yet. They're still, they're, they're still 
God is still creating them. They're not born. Two nations are in your room. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. There, we're going to talk today about this idea of predestination and free will. Because you see in this passage, God seems to do a couple things. Number one, he, he makes a distinction between the two. He says, okay, there, there's two boys there. One of them is going to be stronger than the other. And that's almost an, ob, you know, it could be an observation. Oh, this son is going to be more powerful, maybe have more talents, something. But, you know, he, God is making a distinction. These boys aren't exactly the same. One's going to be stronger than the other. But it also seems that he's making not just a distinction. It seems as though he's making a determination, One's going to be stronger than the other, and one's going to serve the other. And just because one is stronger doesn't mean that the weaker one always serves the stronger one, is it? We know that that's true, and God even says that. God seems to be making not just a distinction, hey, they're different, but almost a determination. And this is how things are going to play out. This one is going to do this, and this one is going to do that. And, I, and it seems as though God is God dictating that? Is God saying this is what's going to happen? That question is raised here, I think, particularly with these two boys, because we see these two boys, Jacob and Esau, raised throughout the scriptures in this context. We see it again in the book of Malachi. Many, many years later, Malachi was a book written to the, to the uh, nation of Israel. Malachi was a prophet who was speaking for God to the nation of Israel many, many generations later. And in Malachi chapter 1, God says this, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Interesting. Now we see God referring back to Jacob and Esau, these, these two boys that he told Rebekah about. One's, he made a distinction and a determination. But now, many years later, God is looking back and saying, you know what, one of them I loved and one of them I hated. In other words, God's disposition toward them seems to be different. God's, God's attitude, I, I struggled to try to find the right word here, but somehow God's disposition was the best word I could come up with, is different. And he says a kind of a shocking thing here. They were brothers, yet I loved Jacob, and Esau I hated. And, and if you read the story, we're going to go through this as we read through Genesis. As, as you read the story, when you look at Jacob's life, it, it's not the case, I don't think, that you look at Jacob's life and say, oh, God loved Jacob because Jacob deserved to be loved. Jacob was a, was when you read his life, there's not a lot to to emulate he was he was greedy he was self-centered he was he was a sneak he was um the the one thing he seemed to have going for him is he did not quit he persevered and god praised him for that but it's like you persevere being a jerk and you know what it, it almost seems like that when you look at jacob's life it's hard to say oh god loved jacob because he was a good man nor When you see Esau's life, do you look at it and think, oh, he was so horrible and horrendous. I can see why God hated him. In fact, in many ways, Esau seems to come across a little better than his brother. Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright. 
Esau was angry, threatened to kill him, but seemed to have repented. And years later, when Esau had a chance to kill Jacob, instead welcomed him. So, so when you look at it, you can think, well, wait a minute here. If, if this was just completely by merit, why did God love Jacob, who seemed to be at least quite a bit unlovable? Why did he hate Esau, who didn't seem to be such a bad guy? And we see this issue being raised. Well, did God choose to do things or did these guys choose to do things, and how did that work? Fast forward to Romans, the New Testament. Now, we're many generations later. Jesus has come. God has sent the, the Messiah through Abraham. The promise happened, and Christ came, and he, and he took on a body. God took on a body like ours. He lived a life. He s- willingly sacrificed his life to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. That has now happened. It's in the past. Paul is a guy that God has raised up to go and to present that message. God gave Paul understanding that other people didn't have to explain this message. And in the book of Romans, Paul is spending a lot of time explaining what we call the gospel. The gospel is just what I said. We are sinners. God has sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. And that fact, if we accept that or, or that, that the fact that Jesus died for our sins is the only way for us to become right with God. Paul spends the rest of his life sharing that throughout the known world. And the book of Romans is kind of his treatise on it. It's kind of his, Paul's a very intellectual, very wise fella. And he wrote the book of Romans trying to explain as clearly as he could this mystery of the gospel. And in Romans chapter 9, he quotes both of these verses, Genesis 25, 23, and Malachi 1. And I'm going to read just, just a little passage here in, Gen, or I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to start with verse 10. And Paul says, that, and, 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 and again, he's talking about the gospel, that Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins and what that means to us. He says this, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. That's Genesis twenty-five twenty-three. Then he says, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's Malachi 1. So he quotes both of those passages here. And then he goes on to say this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And he goes on to explain even more. So... Here's the question. When we look at Genesis 25 and we see these two boys, and then we see later where God speaks to them again, and now here, when the gospel is being explained, these two boys are being raised up as a picture in the gospel. How, how you and I get saved, how a person becomes saved. Here's, here's the question. And, and, and I tried hard to frame this, because, because you've heard, I'm sure, most of us have heard predestination and free will. We, we've heard those terms. Perhaps you've heard the terms Calvinist or Arminianist, Calvinism or Arminianism. Um, those were men who championed different sides of this coin. Uh, you've perhaps heard the term Reformed theology. That, that, that's, a, that's a more recent 
way of thinking that that leans into one side or the other. But I, I tried to, I tried to 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 boil this down to a question that we could talk about a little bit. Here's my best, here's my best effort, and I couldn't come up with one, so I took two cracks at it. Here's the first one: Is salvation a choice or a compulsion? In other words. Do I choose to get saved, or does God compel me to get saved? Do I, do I choose to accept Christ, or, or does God compel someone? In other words, and maybe this next one is a better way to say it. Do some choose Jesus, or does God choose some? If Jesus is the paid the penalty for my sins, the question is, is that available for anyone to choose? And some will choose it and some won't, but everybody can choose it. Or is it the case that God chooses some to accept Christ? And I ran that by my partner, Justin, and he signed off on that as a, as a, as a good question. So this is a debate that has raged through, I won't say raged, this is a debate that has worked its way through Christendom since ancient times. Long before Calvin and Arminius ever thought about this, Augustine, even before those early church fathers, they wrestled with it, because it gets to things like the idea of original sin, and it gets to the nature of God, and it gets to the nature of man. So what we're going to do today, we didn't want to just ignore this, but we also, so Justin and I come down on different sides of this issue. Justin uh, would lean into more of the predestination side. I would lean into more of the free will side. Now, there is a spectrum on this. You, you can go far in both directions, or you can be closer to the center. Um, I would say Justin and I are both closer to the center, but we are very much on different sides of the center, and we have had this conversation many, 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 many times, <laughs> and it's almost, it's almost kind of funny because we'll be talking about something, and it's like it circles back to predestination. It's like, let's just let that go and talk about something else. But, but what we're going to do today is not try to solve this question for anybody. Godly men and women will come down on different sides of this issue. We're not pretending to give you the answer on this. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you why I believe what I believe. Justin is going to tell you why he believes what he believes about this specific issue. How do we answer these questions? Then we're going to talk about how do we operate in unity within that disagreement? Hopefully then we'll have some time for questions, okay? So, do you understand where we're going here? This is the question, basically. When it comes to salvation, is salvation just presented to everyone and people just choose it? Anyone can choose it? Or are some people compelled to choose it and they need to be, and, and I'll let Justin describe this better than, than I could, the other side, but does God choose some to be saved? That's the question. I'm going to start. I'm going to lay out why I believe what I believe. Then Justin's going to come up and lay out what he believes what he believes. Justin, we, we, we told each other we each get 10 minutes. Justin doesn't think he can do it in 10 minutes. I'm not sure how I'm going to make this last 10 minutes. Um, 
So here's, I, I believe some choose Jesus. I, I lean into that. Now, you, you'll hear both Justin and I say, neither one of us claim to understand this completely. This is a topic that I can absolutely understand the idea of predestination. There are passages in Scripture where God will use the word predestined, and I believe him. I just don't understand it. So this is not, again, don't get the... Don't think that I'm telling you this is what's right and anything Justin says is wrong or, that, or, or the other way around. We recognize that in many ways we are just young boys trying to sort this out. Um, but let me tell you where I come down on this issue. First, this is my case for, for free will. I think that there are clear calls in the scripture for us to make a choice. I I think that there are many, many, many statements like this. Here's just one. It's in Deuteronomy, verse or chapter thirty, verse nineteen. It says, "This day I call heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live." Scripture is filled with, with statements like that, where he commands by God or invitations by God for us to choose, calls, if you will, clear calls for us, to, where God says here, I, I've set something in front of you, now choose, choose well. I, I see these kinds of uh, clear um, calls all throughout scriptures. This is this is just just one of them. It it carries through the Old Testament. This is back in Deuteronomy. So this is this is early early on in God's revelation to us where we're early on we see this choose here's a choice make make a a good choice all throughout the the prophets i i i like to read through the prophets isaiah and ezekiel and jeremiah and they are filled filled with with um calls like this. I, I just read this morning or, or yesterday, I was reading in Ezekiel and, and God says to Ezekiel in chapter 33, hey, I've given you a word. Now I want you to say it. If you do, this is what's going to happen. If you don't say what I tell you, this is what's going to happen. But it seems to me very clearly that there's a choice there for Ezekiel. Even, even the word that God says to Ezekiel, the word is, hey, tell people that I'm coming to judge them. If, if you say it and they listen, well, then they have a choice. They can either respond to it or not. I, I just see all throughout the prophets God calling people. In fact, he says that, I've sent my prophets to you telling you, turn from your evil ways. There just seems to be this constant, constant calling from God, this kind of a call, make a wise choice. I've set before you a choice today, make a wise one. It carries forward to the New Testament. In fact, the, the, the whole idea of, of repentance, I think, demands some kind of a choice. Here in Acts 17, verse 30, um, it says this, uh, oops, over here. Acts 17.30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
in, in Acts 17 here, Paul is, is sharing the gospel. He's in, he's in Athens, and he's sharing with a bunch of people who don't understand the gospel, and he's telling them about God and about Christ. And he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. You guys didn't know, but now you do know. So, so right away we see God saying, okay, they don't know, but I'm going to overlook it. But now you have a choice. I've told you something. And so he commands you, all people everywhere, to do what? To repent. Well, repent means to, to think differently. And, and in my mind, repentance demands an understanding. I see, I've been doing this. I've been thinking this and doing this. But now I understand that there's something else. So here's what I've been thinking and doing, but now I see there's something else, and I need to choose to stop doing and thinking this and choose to begin doing and thinking this. In my mind, repentance demands some sort of choice, some sort of cognitive understanding and a willful, conscious choice, where God tells people everywhere, hey, now that Christ has come, you must repent. You must change your mind. So I see that this, this, um, this idea of a choice is tied into the gospel. The whole idea of, of Jesus coming and offering himself and us repenting, in my mind, demands a recognition and a choice. And I think that that is in God's character. I, I think from what I can see of God's character, it's in his nature to include, to not exclude. He says this, you know, I, he, he commands all people everywhere to, to repent. In John 3.16, God so loved the world, not some, but all the world, that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in, in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, Verses 3 and 4 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think from what I understand of God's character, not that there aren't other things in God's character, but, but his, his hunger, his desire is for all people to, to be saved. So I think probably for me it's summed up best in this. It's in Ezekiel this is a passage in Ezekiel, and, and Ezekiel 33 is a good passage to chew on if you want to, to think about this. But verse 11 kind of sums up, at least for me, where, it, where I come down on this. This is what it says. Um, Say to them, this is God speaking, first person. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And it catches for me much of this. It's the sovereign Lord. God is sovereign. He is king. He can do anything he wants. But as the sovereign Lord, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. I want people, I want all people to be saved. So I've put a choice before you. And he implores us, turn. Why would you die? Please turn. This for me kind of of encapsulates my my position. So just in summary, I, I think that God gives each of us a choice to accept Christ or not. Now, having said that, I realize that Justin has powerful thoughts, and I'm going to invite Justin up to share his side because he sees this a little bit differently. And we have, we have gone back and forth on this a lot. And 
and let you let you take over. Well, thank you, sir. Yes, um, it is true that we disagree um, fairly, maybe fundamentally. I don't know what the right word would be. Um, but I'm just going to pray and uh, settle my own nerves. I approach this subject with some fear and trembling and some trepidation. So, uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you've given us your word. Uh, we're so grateful that you reveal things to us in Scripture God, we are little boys and little girls uh, holding your hand, and there are so many things that are hard for us to understand and comprehend, like what Paul writes in, in Romans 8 and 9. So, Father, I just ask that your Spirit would be working in us, revealing your Word to us, that we would be humble in our application of Scripture, that we would be stalwart in our defense of your truth, and God, that you would just help us draw nearer to you and closer to you as your people and we thank you um, for all the wonderful things that you accomplished through the blood of Christ on that cross. And we pray, Lord, that we would just uh, walk hand in hand throughout our lives for your glory and honor and praise. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So now as Rob mentioned, him and I disagree uh, fairly, I would maybe fundamentally on the issue of Jacob and Esau and how we understand the concept or the issue of uh, the freedom of the will. And I want to start off to give you a little bit of my background, even though I'm limited on time this morning. Um, what, I was an Arminian, uh, and maybe one of the worst things in the world is a converted Arminian to a Calvinist. Um, but uh, I believed in the modern con conception of free will, that we had the ability to choose and not choose God. And I believed that till I, about my midway through my edge experience, which is the college ministry that Cedar Creek had. And so I believed that quite exhaustively. And then a friend of mine, um, after I began to really study the Bible and began to regularly read, as I was encouraged by Rob and others, uh, I was confronted with the issue of election in Romans 8 and 9. And so a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, there's this cool book by R.C. Sproul called Chosen by God. And so I read this book and... I began to explore the topic of predestination and election in depth, and I went from an Arminian to a Calvinist sometime in college. So this isn't new for me, um, but this is something that has been true for probably the last uh, 12 to 14 years. Now, since then, after studying Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, I studied uh, Luther's Bondage of the Will, uh, Jonathan Edwards' masterpiece, Freedom of the Will. Um, there's a good work by St. Augustine called Predestin, uh, sorry, The Treatise of the Predestination of the Saints. All of these are in your handouts this morning. Um, and, uh, of course, John Calvin's Sermons on Election and Reprobation. So I really, really dove into this over the last 12 years and have studied it in depth. And I would encourage you, if you're wrestling with some of these things, you can check out R.C. Sproul's book. That's probably the most digestible of all of them. But anyway, so this isn't new to me. Um, I approach this with fear and trepidation because when I say that I'm a Calvinist, um, I imagine a man, many of you probably get uncomfortable. The modern view or conception of Calvinism is that we don't believe in human will, that we don't make choices. The modern conception of what John Calvin taught in the 1600s is that we're puppets, that God is capricious and arbitrary, he's pulling strings, um, and if that is what Calvinism is, I'm not a Calvinist. Um, if that is what Calvinism is, I'm not a Calvinist. So Rob gave me roughly 10 minutes to explain my position on Jacob and Esau, and I'm going to do my best to do that. And I think it's fundamentally tied to our understanding of 
both the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of original sin. So original sin and, fall, and the fall of man is really our bedrock. It's the foundation for understanding um, choices in our world. So the question I would ask is how fallen or how sinful are we really? How bad was the fall in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took the fruit and were cast out of the garden? And so I'm going to turn to Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Uh, this one's in your handout this morning. Where Paul writes, he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So in this text, he, he, he puts all of us there. None of us are righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Nobody. There's not a single person who does. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No one does good. That's all of us. Not even one. So I think in this verse we see a sweeping condemnation of mankind's moral ability. None of us seek him. None of us desire him. And in our fallen state, he says we become totally worthless. Those are really strong words from Paul. They, they make me tremble. Like, ooh, it's that bad. I see the tip of the iceberg of my sin here. And so we have lost this ability to choose good. We have lost this moral ability to choose good. We are far more fallen than we think. And yes, we have free will. Yes, we make choices, but we only desire evil. We only desire things that aren't good. Now, I say that, and I think the immediate objection to that is, well, people choose good things all the time, right? I mean, if you look out in the world, there's charities. People are donating to charity. People are running charities. People are helping the poor. You help an old lady across the street. You know, you do things that on the outside look good. But if we read through the scriptures, we find that God isn't interested in what we're doing on the outside. In fact, there's many places in the Old Testament where the people are performing the sacrifices as God has asked them to. And he says, these things are abominations that are abhorrent because your heart is wicked. Your heart is sinful. And so in our fallen state, we may do things that look good on the outside. I might be here on stage and be like, wow, he's a really cool guy. I have a depraved heart just like everybody else, and I can do things from sinful motivations that look real good, just like the rest of us can. And if, if you're struggling with that concept, I put these in your, verse, or in your handouts, Isaiah 64, 6, Jeremiah 17, 9, um, and Genesis 6, 5. You can look at those passages, and you'll see that, I think, supported there. Now, so from that doctrine of original sin of our fallen nature, I have found it very easy to conclude that we have lost the ability to choose good, to choose God on our own. And not only do I see this in many passages in the scriptures, I believe Jesus also taught this. If you turn to John chapter 6, verse 65, he writes, Jesus is speaking, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, notice in this verse that Jesus says no one can come to to him. Does the word can mean nobody has permission or nobody has ability? In school, if you were ever in the classroom and you asked, can I go to the bathroom? What does the teacher retort? I'm sure you can go to the bathroom. You may also go to the bathroom. The word can and may have different implications. And here, the word may, if it was, it would be implying permission, which Jesus is saying we don't have permission. But can is referring to ability. Jesus is saying we don't have the ability any longer to come to him because we don't choose good. He knows what's in the hearts of man. 
Now, I, I think that differentiation between can and may is really important, and I think a lot of uh, reformers and people in the past have taught things similarly. Rob mentioned St. Augustine earlier, back in the third and fourth century AD, he was around, and he taught this idea. And he claimed, he broke our will into really two parts. He said, man has free will, but we lack liberty. And now that makes me scratch my head. You have to think about what that means. But when he was presenting this idea, he had this understanding that we have free will, we make choices, absolutely, but we lack liberty to choose what is good in our fallen state. So Augustine taught this idea. Jonathan Edwards broke it down a little bit differently, but effectively it was the same. He argued that we had natural ability and moral ability. Our natural ability is the physical things we do. We walk, we talk, we breathe, we eat, we put on clothes, and we make choices. This is within the natural means of the physical world. But then he said we lacked moral ability, and he went to this passage in Romans 3, 10 through 12, and others where it says, well, nobody seeks good. Nobody desires to please God. Nobody seeks God. Nobody has a natural desire for Christ. And so certainly we all make choices, but because we're inclined to evil, like we see in Genesis 6-5, Jeremiah 17-9, and other places, we don't choose good. Now, I think Jesus taught this throughout the book of John, and I think Paul also taught it in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, right before our famous verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, we see verses 1 through 5, He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved. See, here Paul is teaching that you and I were dead. Dead. We we weren't hanging on by a thread. I don't find the analogy of an evangelist throwing a life preserver out to a drowning man applies here. No, the man's already drowned. He's at the bottom of the lake. We weren't mostly dead, like in Princess Bride. We were spiritual corpses. And we see here in Verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. Monergism, fancy term, it just means God did it. He planted the desire in our hearts. He brought us back to life. He alone did it. Now, synergism is the idea that we cooperated, which is really what Rob's talking about. We hand in hand go in this, I choose, he choose, and it's like a maybe simultaneous thing that's happening. I don't think synergism is being taught in Ephesians 1 and 2 throughout the book of John, Romans 8 and 9, and many other places. So God in his grace chose to plant a desire in his elect's heart so that they would respond and choose him. I do believe that God, while it's a monergistic thing, God does it to save us, we do walk then hand in hand and make choices synergistically, him and I hand in hand walking through this life me choosing between good and evil. Now, I imagine you're sitting here thinking, that's not fair. That's not just. I don't feel that's righteous. And to give a brief reply to that, I would say this. We all agree, I think, if we're Christians here, that all mankind is sinful. All of us have fallen. We believe and understand that all mankind, because of that sinful nature, deserve justice. We understand that because we all deserve justice, we are destined to hell. And we know in scriptures that 
the Bible says that not all mankind is saved, right? And so that really leaves us with two options. Either God puts out a general call to all of mankind and leaves it to us, or God does a work in certain heart to ensure their salvation. Now, if it's true that we are unable to choose Christ because of our fallen nature, then putting out a general call would condemn us all. It would damn us all, because none of us would choose it. Or God can choose to ensure the salvation of his people. Now, in, in addition to that, I would add, we must hold to the truth that we see in Scripture that there is no injustice, there is no unrighteousness in our Heavenly Father. He reveals that to us in the Word. And so we have to grapple with, whether we're Arminian or Calvinist, that those who don't respond or those who don't have a desire planted in their heart will receive justice, and justice is still good. And those who are elect, which we see that, whether you believe it's by your choice or whether you believe that God planted that desire in you, will receive mercy. Justice is good, and mercy is also good. Now, I would encourage you, if this concept troubles you, spend some time reading through Romans 8 and 9, where we kind of see that put on display. Rob mentioned Romans 9.15 and 9.16, some of my favorite passages in Scripture. So, to tie this all together, to back, back to Jacob and Esau here, which was the whole point, or the whole starting foundation of our discussion this morning, how do I understand what is going on in Genesis 25.23 and Malachi chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9? God in his grace, his unmerited favor to Jacob, was working in his life and granting him mercy. Now, Rob mentioned, I mean, I, Jacob had issues. Honestly, of the patriarchs, I don't like him very much. He is the one patriarch I really wrestle with understanding why God would choose him. It says in Romans that it wasn't by anything he did. Well, amen, because he did a lot of just slimy stuff, and he makes me uncomfortable. But he was one of God's chosen, and so God was working in him unmerited favor, unmerited grace, mercy, and he was doing that in his life. And now in Esau, God was not giving him mercy. He was giving him justice. He was allowing Esau's sinful nature to just do what Esau wanted to do. He was effectively saying, you do you. So Jacob received grace and mercy, and Esau received justice. Now we get to that passage in Malachi where it says God hated Esau. And that's troubling, right? He hated somebody. Does that mean that our God is evil and malicious in this and he's actively pushing Esau down? No. I don't think that is what is being taught. That's where you start to get into hyper-Calvinism, where God is actively holding back people. Rather, it is God given, giving Esau over to his fallen nature. And if you read Romans chapter 1, we see that God does this to people, and he does this to nations. He gives us over to our debased minds to do what ought not to be done. And that's where we end up with all of the sexual perversion in our culture, and among other things, by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. So in a nutshell, we are more fallen than we realize. We are more sinful than we could imagine. And left to ourselves, I don't believe we would ever choose God without him putting or planting that desire in us. We are certainly free to make choices. All of us do. We all recognize that. Amen and hallelujah. We are making choices every day, all the time. And I think the scriptures testify that, testify to that. But we will only choose evil. 
And I think if God put out a general call to all, the, to all of mankind, none of us would choose him. And so he works in the hearts of those who are his, his chosen people, to ensure the salvation of his elect. He doesn't do anything unrighteous or unjust. We either receive justice or we receive mercy. Now, I would love to talk about it more. I was limited in time. I actually kept it under 15 minutes, which... Oh, it's 15.46. 15 minutes. Um, I'd love to talk about it more. If you think I'm a heretic, that's fine. Um, I do approach this with some fear and trembling because we're trying to represent our Heavenly Father here and draw us all closer to Him. So with that, um, yeah. Yeah, so I went seven, so I won the argument, I think. That's... <laughs> no, so let me, let me do this. Let me see if I can just sum up our mm-hmm. positions and you sure. tell me if this is fair. <clears throat> Um, you would say that, that, that the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, mm-hmm. they became uh, depraved, they, they became debased to the point where they could no longer choose good. Yes. yes. Now, if you were, if you were a five-point Calvinist, you would say total depravity. I think I prefer radical corruption. Okay. Uh, Sproul and others teach that. Effectively, it just but, means but, every part of our nature is corrupt. So there's no way then for a person to choose to accept Christ, basically, because they're too sinful. Yes, we, yeah. we yeah. wouldn't choose good. Yeah. We wouldn't choose Christ. And, 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 I, w- and, and I disagree with that. Yes, I, I, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think it's similar probably to, and, and I understand that, but I, I think it's probably similar to Adam and Eve before the fall were in a state of perfection and mm-hmm. yet still could choose evil somehow. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't stretch my imagination for after the fall, they're in a state of, of sin or degradation, but they still have something to choose good. And I know we, we yep. disagree on that, but that's probably where I would yep. come from, that there is still that ability to choose good. Is that, is that a fair... Yeah, there's a cool chart out there, if you like charts. Uh, Adam <laughs> and Eve were able to sin and able to not sin. In our fallen state, it's only sin. Everything we do is sin. And then in our regenerate state, being a Christian, we regain what Adam and Eve had in the garden. We are able to sin and able to not sin. Right. And, and one of the reasons that I don't take that is, is all of the passages, like I said, where God seems to present a choice to mm-hmm. us and asks us mm-hmm. to choose. Now, having, and, and, and I'm sure that you, as a, as a more Calvinistic guy, scratch your head at those passages. No, Just not really. Like I, well, you do too, because we've had this conversation. <laughs> and, and, and you can't explain them any more than I can explain the passages where God says, it'll, mm-hmm. like in Romans 9, you know, yeah. it doesn't depend on God's or on man's sure. choice. I scratch my head at that, and I think, okay, well, I believe that because mm-hmm. God says it, but I don't know what it means in light of these other things. Because sure. it seems as though we're talking about two things that can't both be true at the same time. Sure. It, sure. I mean, it, it, sure. The passages that you're referring to, like in Ezekiel or mm-hmm. Deuteronomy, are written to, well, so God had a special relationship with his chosen people of Israel. And so they're, generally speaking, a picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when he is giving a call to choose, he is calling his chosen to make a choice, and that's his perceptive will. And so when I read those passages, I think, okay, so God is talking to his chosen people. That is a picture of my uh, relationship with him as his chosen person, as an elect. And so, Yeah, yes. but that's not what it says. It says, choose life so that you can live. And yeah, and it's speaking to Ezekiel and his people. But what you're saying is that he's calling his chosen people to choose. So it's a choice God is calling them to choose something, but he's already made the choice for them. Well, now we're talking about obedience versus salvation. This is where we go all the time. This just goes back and forth. And we never come to an agreement on it. And 
Justin is pretty sure that some of my understanding of this is wrong. It goes both ways. I have told Justin this <laughs> <I'm> morning <laughs> what you're saying is illogical. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So here, we're going to get to questions in a second. Here's, here's the thing that's important, though. The fact that we have a disagreement about this, well, welcome Amen. to Christianity. <laughs> yes. This has been going yep. on literally for thousands of years, this exact debate. Mm-hmm. To think that we're going to sort it out is nonsensical. We're not going to. But here's the next thing. We have to make a case for unity. That's the thing. We disagree, but we don't have to be divided. And I believe that, and I mean that with all my heart. I want to... Justin and I can completely disagree about this topic and still come into work and pastor together and work together and labor together and love each other and serve each other and trust each other because both of us believe something about God, that God is very strong, he can do what he wants, and God is very good. The things that God does are good. We don't understand either of those things. We cannot fathom the depth of God's power, his ability to act, the things he can and does do. We can't figure them out because we're just, because we're not God. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than ours. We, are, I, we, we, we tell each other this. We're like second graders arguing about space travel. Okay, there's a rocket and it goes up in the air. But then there's an awful lot of stuff that just escapes us. Mm -hmm. So God is very powerful. He's sovereign. He can do what he will. But God is also very good. And I love this verse in Psalm 145. You should read Psalm 145 because it talks about those two things. God's power, having reverence for God, but having confidence in God's goodness. And verse 17 says, the Lord is righteous. He does the right thing. He's righteous in all his ways, and he's loving toward all he has made. We can't get to the bottom of all of that. When God does certain things, we may not understand exactly how is that righteous or how is that loving, but I believe that it's true. And just like a little kid with its parents, when, when, when my kids were faced with a plate full of peas and there was a donut in the middle of the table, and Dad said, eat the peas and not the donut. That made no sense to them. This sucks completely, <laughs> and that's wonderful. And they couldn't understand about vitamins and all that stuff, but they believed mom and dad. Mm -hmm. I have to believe in Justin, and together as brothers with the same God, we say, well, you know what? We can talk about this, and we will. It'll come up again, and we'll go round and round, and we'll get to the end of it, (laughs) and we'll say, well, I don't know. I can't explain it all. You can't explain it all, but God is strong, and God is good. Let's follow him together. In all honesty, people, that's where the rubber meets the road, not in trying to sort this out. If you demand to know the answer to this, you're in trouble. You're not going to, and you're just going to make enemies. But there's a case for unity. Yeah, absolutely. I I 100% agree. Rob knew I was Calvinistic-leaning before I was appointed here as a pastor. And y'all could have said, "Ah, sorry, disagree, can't be. Uh, a pastor here, or I could have hightailed it out of here knowing you're an Arminian. Um, a good example of this, uh, I don't know if you guys... Stupid Arminian. <laughs> um, a good example of this, Joseph Ar- Arminius, uh, the guy who tokened with Arminianism, uh, he told his students to go read Calvin's work. 
He said, I disagree with this guy, but he is so smart and he loves the Lord and yeah. you should read what he has exactly. to say. Loves the Lord. And yeah. that is really powerful yeah. uh, for us. You know, him and I may disagree on things, but uh, that's okay. Yeah. The, and I, and I, would, I would say it's good to seek the answers, but the humility, we talked about yeah. this when we talked about studying the scriptures the last two weeks, you have to have humility yes. and recognizing you can't fathom all things. Yep. God keeps secret things to himself, things that we will struggle to, yeah. to understand. Yeah. Yep. All right, we have a, uh, at least five minutes. We'd like to, uh, Aaron, you had your hand up. Do you have a question or a comment? Yeah. Go ahead. And his sovereignty. Yep. And, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Amen. Right. Right. Yeah. But for, for the live stream, basically what Aaron said was that there, if you take either of these predestination or free will to their to the far extremes if, if you just eliminated one of them and let the other one take you as far as it would go you'd end up in a bad place because if you just mm-hmm. chased predestination then, then then like aaron said it would then god would become in essence to blame for my sin and my stupidity yep. if i just took free will and went that way then god loses his sovereignty and he's just a you know, somewhere off there, and mm-hmm. he's dependent on me, and neither of those are true. And so, so they're both true, but that's the crux. We try to, they seem, and in some ways they are not compatible in the framework that we live in as humans, and so we wrestle with them. But we have to be willing to accept that both of these things are true to some degree, and I don't think we're ever going to totally sort them out. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Steve. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good. Th- it's, 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 that's a good example, and God yeah. does that. He'll give us physical pictures of spiritual realities, and the physical picture Steve said was light is both a particle and a wave, and physically they both can't be true. It has to be one or the other, and yet depending on how you read it, it's it's both. Well, that can't be. Well, this it's like they both can't be true, and yet they kind of are, yeah. and so it's a physical picture of it. Yeah, Greg. The elect, sure, elect, yeah. yep. Ha-ha. <laughs> right. we, we started yeah, so, that conversation earlier this yeah. morning. That's, that's where you get into <laughs> perseverance or preservation of the, the saints, saints, that right. God works efficaciously within people. His, his will <laughs> is effective, and it, it works within us, and it ushers us into the kingdom. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we, the question was, 
if you're elect, can you lose, lose that? Can you yep. lose your salvation? We're not going to go there this morning. I told Justin, I, 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 I told Justin this morning that his, his predestination arguments were illogical, but I said, don't take that to heart because I know my eternal salvation arguments are completely illogical. They don't make any <laughs> sense at all. So. Sure, sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, Paul. That's a good question, and this is probably the last one because we're going to take communion here in a minute. But uh, the, the question was, does your point of view change your actions, basically, change how you function as a Christian? That is an excellent question, and I'll let you speak to that I, sure. it, because we've had this conversation yep. as well, and the answer is kind of but not fundamentally. Yeah, kind of but not fundamentally is probably a good way to put it. So if you look at it from an evangelistic perspective, you and I believe we need to be witnesses to the world, and so we evangelize to the world. And a Calvinist would say, well, God is doing something, and some people will take that to hyper-Calvinism, which is what we were kind of poking at before, where, well, God is just going to do what he's going to do, and I don't have to do anything. Um, But that's just not the case. I, I look at evangelism as a command, so I will go out and evangelize. And what is happening in the heart of the person I can't see. Whether it's God planting a desire in them and them responding to the call or them hardening their own heart, I don't know. So I will evangelize, very similarly to the way Rob will. We will see what's happening in the heart of the person different. And then if the person chooses Christ, whether it's because God put that disposition in them or they chose it themselves, now they're walking hand in hand, synergistically, cooperatively with God to choose good and evil, like back in the garden. So we see this little bubble of what's going on in the heart differently but the, the start and the end really are very, very much the same. We're, we're commanded to do the same thing, whether we're a predestined, whether a Calvinist or an Arminian, and we both see the commands and the scriptures the same. We do the same things. It's just what God does in the midst of that that we don't quite get, but our command is the same. So, so on a very fundamental level, no, it doesn't change anything in the way we, we act. Maybe, yeah, go ahead. Last one, and I promise we're going to... I would say that God allows some to stay in their sinful nature and others he makes an efficacious call, so to speak, that plants a desire in their heart and they, would, they respond to that. Yeah. So yes, he does not, uh, he's not positively pushing anybody down, meaning God's not saying, no, 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 you can't come to me. It's just you don't, you, your sinful nature is keeping you from that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, God allows people to live in their sin if they but, choose but, to. But other people, in that view, he would lift out of that. He, yes. He, he would, would choose to lift some. Yeah. Yep. And, and I would say that the call is universal. And that's where mm-hmm. I, I think we're, we're different. Yep. We need to be done. Mark's going to come up. What? Coming up. You're coming up. <laughs> we're going to be done. Uh, we have a potluck after. We both love to talk about this. Um, we both love to talk about this more. Um, I, I will reiterate, we are united as a pastoral team. We differ on this doctrine, and I think that's okay. Um, I don't think he's a demonic heretic. He doesn't think I'm a demonic heretic. We both are looking at, or at least maybe I, I don't think he does, um, but we, we love each other in the Lord and just disagree on this doctrine. So I'll pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you teach us and instruct us. We're so grateful that you 
just have given us logic and reason to work through these things and that we're your little boys and we're your little girls and that, Lord, if we walk hand in hand with you, we will find ourselves in your arms in heaven someday. So, God, we thank you for Christ and what he's accomplished and pray that you would draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.